Well, this is our final message here on spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. So I just want to take just a few minutes here before we jump into this particular text to do a a, a quick review of what we've covered. In chapter 12, we see Paul wanting to release everyone who confesses Jesus as Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit onto the playing field of being a spirit-empowered minister. He wants all of God's people who confess Jesus Christ as Lord to be a spirit-empowered minister. Every believer has been given an endowment of life through the Spirit to give away to others. Better yet, as Paul puts it in chapter 12, verse 7, to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So manifestation, that's what he calls the gifts of the Spirit. the Spirit manifesting himself or showing himself through each person, through each believer in Christ, for the good of the body. There it is, right? Each is given a gift, a manifestation to be given away for the benefit of others. Isn't this an amazing privilege that we have? I mean, Paul elsewhere, earlier in 1 Corinthians and then later in 2 Corinthians, he talks about how we are the temple of God and that God's spirit dwells in us. So it's such an amazing privilege that he not only dwells in us for our good and for our eternal good, but he dwells in us and wants to dwell through us and live through us for the benefit of others. But this is also a great responsibility. Remember, no true Christian, this is what Paul says in chapter 12, no true Christian can say the body doesn't need me. Right? He says the hand cannot say to the foot, I have no need of you. And the foot can't say to the hand, you have no need of me. Every person in the body of Christ, bought by the blood of Jesus, and dwelt by the Spirit, is an integral part of the functioning of of the entire body. John Wimber used to say, everyone gets to play. Okay, everyone gets to play when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit. Everyone gets to come to participate and play the game, if you will. No one's a spectator, all right? But the very last verse of chapter 12, Paul pushes us toward the spiritual gifts and he says that there's a more excellent way, right? He says, I'm gonna show you an even more excellent way. And of course, the more excellent way Paul's talking about is the way of love. That love is a way of life. It's not just something that we, it's not something that we receive and, 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 and walk in here and there, but it's meant to be a way of life. And Paul makes it clear that the way of love is the more excellent way because love is supreme. Love is the supreme gift of the Spirit that we all want. In fact, all the gifts outlined in chapter 12 Paul says they're pointless without love, right? Do you remember how, what Paul says in chapter 13? He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And he says, if I have prophetic powers and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith, even to move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing, says, if I give all that I have away and I even deliver my body up to be burned at the stake, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. So love is supreme. And then he goes through and talks about all of the the virtues that are attendant with love. He says, love is patient and kind. It doesn't boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. 
Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and bears all things. And then he says love is supreme because love, unlike the gifts, love goes on forever. The gifts, they will cease. I don't believe they've ceased yet, but when Jesus comes again, there, there will be no need for prophecy. Praise God, there will be no need for the gift of healing. Right when Jesus comes, he'll just, he'll just do it all himself. He'll just, everyone will be made brand new, brand new bodies, no more healing necessary. All of these gifts will go away. But now, in, in the meantime, we are called to walk in the way of love. As we move into chapter 14, Paul takes up the subject of tongues and prophecy. Almost the whole chapter is devoted to tongues and prophecy. And his purpose is very clear throughout. The gift of prophecy, which, which I would define as receiving a spontaneous revelation from the Spirit and speaking it in your own words, this gift is particularly beneficial for the church because it is spoken to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. It's to edify them, it's to encourage them or give courage, and it's to console those who are hurting, those who are going through a trial and difficulty. And although tongues is a precious gift, Paul makes it clear that unless it's accompanied by interpretation, it's not beneficial in a church gathering because it should be obvious no one knows what you're saying, right? He says tongues is speech to God. And tongues builds up oneself, whereas prophecy is speech to people, and it builds them up. I want to make it very clear. Paul viewed tongues as a precious gift, and I do too. I see it as a precious gift. Paul even even brags, doesn't he, that he spoke in tongues more than the entire church of Corinth combined. I praise God, I speak in tongues more than all of you. The apostle Paul said that. But he said, nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind so as to instruct than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. So he just, he puts it in perspective. Later in chapter 14, Paul gives some input in terms of oversight in the church of these gifts when the saints are gathered. He talks about how two or three prophets speak, let the others weigh what is said, if anyone has a tongue, let there be interpretation of that tongue. It gives some, some sense of governance and guidance and order in the use of these gifts. Throughout these chapters, we keep hearing a variation of this command, earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Earnestly desire, and it's not a suggestion. It is a command. It's not, it's not suggesting, hey, if you feel like it, Paul's saying, Desire these gifts. Earnestly desire them. The, the, this, this word is translated earnestly desires, translated elsewhere, to lust after. We usually think of lusting as a negative thing. Paul's using it in a positive way, to lust after, to desire deep within these gifts, and especially the gifts that build up the most. So that brings us to our text this morning. There are three things Paul wants to say to round out his discussion on spiritual gifts. And one, he wants to give one more word on order and how these gifts are to be used and function in the church. Two, he wants to give a word on authority. 
namely his authority to speak on such matters. And number three, he wants to give a summary statement on, I think, chapters 12 to 14. So, first, one final statement concerning order in worship and the use of these gifts. Verses 33 to 35, and I think, it's, I think context is very important, okay? We're talking about using the gifts in the church. This is not some context out of nowhere. It's not in outer space somewhere. It doesn't just pull this in out of nowhere. It's a certain context here. Now, when I read this, no doubt some of you perked your head up when I said this. Like, what's this saying? I was like, there's this giant fluorescent pink elephant in the room right now. Okay? So here we go. Verses 33 to 35. Here's what it says. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Wow. Okay, it's there. It's right there, okay? I didn't add that. I promise. I wouldn't. So I'm going to tell you what I think this doesn't mean and what it does mean, and then I want to show you from the text or from from the scriptures, okay? I don't see this as an absolute prohibition of women speaking, prophesying, praying, singing, and so forth in the church, but I do see Paul forbidding women from speaking in a certain manner, namely, the activity of publicly evaluating and correcting words of prophecy in the church. When we, when we look at these verses, all right, we can fall into two ditches, all right? We're, we want to walk down the road of rightly dividing God's word. And there's two ditches on either side of this road, okay? The, one, the ditch on the one side does not take into account everything the New Testament says about the Spirit coming upon men and women, and that we are all called to minister. So the other ditch, however, I think doesn't take into account what this text says. What this, what this text actually says. And so we want to stay out of both ditches. All right? I do. Uh, I labored in prayer much this week thinking about this, right? And it's not something I haven't thought about before. First of all, it seems that there's quite a bit of New Testament evidence that women were, in fact, able and encouraged to prophesy. In particular, I think of Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit was poured out on uh, the, the believers in the upper room in the day of Pentecost, and it spilled out into the streets, and And Peter begins to preach because people are wondering, what is going on here? And Peter says, this is what was prophesied by Joel. And he quotes Joel chapter 2 and says, In the last days, the Lord says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams, even on my male and female servants. I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. So 
it's, there you go. Okay, men and women, young and old, rich and poor, prophesying, full of the Spirit. Later, as we go through the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 21, we see Paul and his companions, Luke and Paul, and whoever else was with them, they come to a town called Caesarea, and there's a man there named Philip. We know Philip from, we're going through Acts as well. Acts chapter 8, Philip was scattered from Jerusalem, goes to Samaria, preaches the gospel, revival breaks out. He goes on from there and ends up settling in Caesarea. Well, it says something interesting about Philip. It says he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And, and it doesn't, actually, the, probably more accurately, it says, he, it says Philip had four unmarried daughters prophesying. It's the, the verb is in this present continual tense. In other words, this is something that they did often, regularly. And it's very, it seems very clear that Luke and Paul and the others experienced this. So it was when the saints were gathered together. I don't, I don't think you'd take away from that. Well, they probably did it privately in a, in a closet somewhere and then it was reported to them. I don't know. That seems like a stretch. <clears throat> In Acts, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul speaks of women praying and prophesying. says, with their heads covered. And I think, again, I think this is in the context of the gathered church with, it, with their heads covered, which I think, I'm, we're not going to get into that, okay? I think it's just an external expression of, of submission, okay? It's uh, culturally was an external expression of submission to husbands. That's what I think it was. Plus, As we've been going through 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, it seems that Paul's understanding and explanation of the gifts is that they were for the public benefit of the church, right? That's that's the purpose of the gifts, is that they are for the benefit of the church. I mean, of course, someone can benefit one-on-one from the gifts as well, but Paul's thrust is we we should desire the gifts that build up the church the most. Okay, so what about this text? How do we account for what this passage actually says? Is is this addressing, as some have suggested, loud, unruly women? That was a particular problem, a local problem in Corinth. I don't think so. For, For one, Paul says... As in all the churches, this was an expectation, not just for the church in Corinth, but in all the churches. Not to mention, okay, um, if, if there was a couple unruly women, I think Paul would address those unruly women. He, he has a history of doing that, even calling out names. Like in Philippians, he calls out the names of two women. He says, tell these ladies to start getting along. Okay. And do we really think in a church like Corinth that there were only unruly women and not unruly men? Corinth was an unruly church, okay, that needed some correction. So, so I don't think it's that. Some have suggested, well, maybe perhaps women sat on one side of the room and men on the others, and women were calling across the church, yelling for their husband's attention and so forth. And uh, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure that's what Paul's after here.
Remember the context is that Paul, is Paul giving instruction on prophecies when the church is gathered together. Verse 29, Paul says this. Let two or three prophets speak and the others weigh what is said. Let two or three prophets speak and, and the others weigh what's said. So the context is of someone prophesying and others weighing what's said and even perhaps getting up and publicly evaluating and judging and perhaps even correcting prophecies. And I think Paul is saying that women should not participate in that activity. Now, this seems to be consistent with the strong contrast Paul makes in verse 34. In verse 34, if you look at it, it says, women are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. So Paul is concerned about a certain kind of speaking that he would see as insubordinate. Paul also appeals to the Old Testament, which establishes the idea of different roles for men and women. The Old Testament establishes the idea that that men and women are both uniquely and, and equally created in the image of God, but we are created different, aren't we? I don't think anyone disputes that. And we're created different, and we have different roles. So when Paul appeals to the law, there's not really a verse that he's appealing to, but I think he's appealing back to Genesis chapter 2. And I say that because he does that two other places, in 1 Corinthians 11 as well as in 1 Timothy 2. I think he's appealing to Genesis chapter 2 before the fall of Adam and Eve into sin and the way that God created them with order. He created Adam to be a loving, kind, providing, protecting head for his wife and family. And he created Eve to be a loving, gentle, caring, supporting, helping, submissive wife to Adam. So I think Paul is directing our attention to the different roles that men and women have in the home and here in the church. Specifically, men are called to headship and leadership. Women are called to submission. Now, I want to make it clear. Headship, not domination. Amen? And submission, not slavery. Okay? And when the family and the church receives this instruction from God and we seek to do this as men and as women, the church and the home flourishes. And when we buck against this, the church and the home, there's confusion and disorder. I realize this is not a popular message, especially for our culture right now but it's one that we need to hear. Men and women are equally made in the image of God, are equal in value and dignity, equal in respect and honor, equally called to ministry, and equal heirs of the grace of life. And I believe this with all of my heart. I have four daughters and an amazing wife. They are incredibly capable and smart and amazing. But 
Men and women are designed by God to have different, different and complementary roles in the home and church. And this is for God's glory and it is for our flourishing. God has designed men to give sacrificial, responsible, Christ-like servant leadership. And God has designed women to respond to that kind of leadership. To respond to that kind of leadership. Men, you need to hear that. To respond to that kind of leadership, okay? With godly, humble, glad, noble, and glorious submission. And I believe Paul's appealing to this good design of God here. That's, that's what I believe. I'm not saying I know everything, but that's, that's where I land on this. So I believe Paul and we want to encourage women to pray, prophesy, read scripture, sing, proclaim the goodness of God, testify for the upbuilding of the church, and to do so with glad, humble, courageous submission but to not publicly judge or correct prophecies. I think that's what Paul is saying here. Second thing Paul wants to address in these final words here in 1 Corinthians 14 is a final word on authority and specifically on these matters regarding spiritual gifts. Paul wants us to know he is not a novice. Paul did not go into a closet somewhere by himself and come up with these ideas on spiritual gifts. They came from the Lord. Verses 36 to 38 says this, or was it from you that the word of God came or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Those are strong words, aren't they? I want you to notice four things. From these words. First, Paul says that the, that the things he's written about are coming from the mouth of the Lord. They're coming from the mouth of the Lord. He says this if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing are a command of the Lord. Not, not that they were a command of the Lord, they are a command of the Lord right now. This is amazing. These are not Paul's words. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think Paul's talking about everything that he's covered in chapters 12 to 14. It says the things about, wit- about which I've written. Things. So all the things he's talked about in chapters 12 to 14. The word, when he says the, the, the things that I am writing to you, the word writing is the Greek word grapho which is the verb form of the word graphe, which is translated scripture. Paul, I think in some way understands he is writing scripture right here. And what do we know about scripture? We know this about scripture. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for us. All of it is. We know from 2 Peter 2, excuse me, 2 Peter 1.21 that scripture came about by men speaking from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Paul, again, is being carried along by the Spirit and speaking the very words of Jesus Christ. Psalm 119.160 says, The sum of God's word is truth. 
And Jesus prayed that we would be sanctified in the truth. And his word is truth. I want you, I want you to think with me. Do we realize how precious this book is? It is amazing how precious this book is. We do not worship a book. We worship God. But this is no ordinary book. Paul says, all the matters about which I've written are a command from the Lord. So let's, let's think about this just for a moment. The spiritual gifts how Paul defines them, the purpose of the gifts, the power of the gifts, the continuance of the gifts. These are from the Lord. It's all from the Lord. The necessity and supremacy of love is from the Lord. Paul's instruction on prophecy and tongues are from the Lord. All things being done decently and in order, this is from the Lord. The command over and over and over again, which we're going to see shortly as well, to earnestly desire spiritual gifts. It's all a command from the Lord. It's all from him. Now, if we, if the clouds parted, it's cloudy today. The clouds parted. We saw the blue sky. Sun started shining down and we heard the audible voice of God it almost wouldn't matter what he said. We'd do it. Paul is saying, this is a command from the Lord. What he's writing about spiritual gifts, about their benefit for us, about the need to pursue them and ask God for them and earnestly desire them. This is all from the Lord. And I think Paul would say, if you have a problem with any of the things that he said, take it up with the Lord. All right? Second, also notice that Paul says, true spirituality is recognizing the lordship of Jesus Christ and submitting to his word. He says, if anyone thinks he is spiritual... If anyone thinks he is spiritual... He needs to recognize that the things I'm writing are from the Lord. It's fitting that this whole section on spiritual gifts way back in chapter 12 starts with saying that no one can even say Jesus is Lord except by a work of God's spirit. Paul sets out on this discussion by, on spiritual gifts by saying that the exaltation of Jesus Christ as Lord is the touchstone of true spirituality. And he says it here again. He ends this way. If you think you're spiritual, if you're spiritual, you need, you need to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and that he is speaking these things. Third, I think it's interesting. I, the New Testament, Paul asserts that New Testament prophecy is brought under the authority of Scripture. Here. It says, if anyone thinks they're a prophet, if anyone thinks they have, if they're a prophet, they have the gift of prophecy. If anyone thinks they're a prophet, he needs to acknowledge that the things I'm writing are from the Lord. He's calling prophetic utterances even to, to come underneath the authority of Scripture. Prophecy is not to be seen as Scripture or authoritative in your life like Scripture. It cannot take the place of Scripture. It should never compete with Scripture, ever. 
It is a gift from the Lord, a precious gift at that. But Paul makes it clear, if you think you are a prophet, make sure you acknowledge the supreme authority of the written word of the Lord. And that's safe. That's a place of safety for all of us. If anyone, if anyone comes and th- says that they're a prophet and that they place themselves above the word, that is someone to run from. Fourth, notice Paul says, if someone doesn't recognize this, he's not recognized. No matter what he says about himself. If he says he's spiritual, if he says he's a prophet, Paul says, if someone doesn't recognize this, he is not recognized. The one who thinks he is spiritual or prophet is out of bounds, out of alignment with the Lord if he does not place himself under the command of the Lord that Paul's writing. So Paul gives a, just wants to assert his authority in the matters that he's writing about here. These are not opinions of men. Right? When, when Paul expounds the, the, the gifts and our need for them, to, for the body to be built up, these are not the opinions of men. These are the words of Christ. Finally, in the last two verses, Paul gives a summer, summary statement. He says this, So, you could put therefore there. Therefore, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. So when Paul says, when Paul again gives another command, therefore, earnestly desire to prophesy, is this a command from the Lord? Come on now. Is this a command from the Lord? Okay, this is a command from the Lord. And when he says, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, is this a command from the Lord Jesus? It is. And when he says, but all things should be done decently and in order, is this a command from, is this from the Lord? It is. So he says, therefore, my brothers, I think that therefore, whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you always want to look at what the writer just got done saying. And I think this therefore takes, goes all the way back to chapter 12, verse one. Now concerning spiritual gifts, my brothers, all the way to the end of chapter 14. Therefore, taking all that I've said up until now, one final statement of summary to all the believers in Corinth. Earnestly desire to prophesy. I find it interesting. We've seen this this phrase, earnestly desire, now three times. We see other phrases that are similar to that, but this exact phrase, this is the third time we've seen it. The first time we saw it in chapter 12, verse 31. When Paul says, earnestly desire the higher gifts or the greater gifts, which I think he meant by that, the gifts that build up the most. Then he goes into the love chapter. Then right out of the love chapter, chapter 14, verse 1, he says, pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And here, now at the end of chapter 14, he says, it's like he, all, that, all the, the middle talk there about earnestly desiring spiritual gifts, or the higher gifts and earnestly desire gifts, especially prophecy, just does away with all that and says, earnestly desire to prophesy. Earnestly desire to prophesy. 
and do not forbid speaking in tongues. When you hear a command like this, just take the first phrase, earnestly desire to prophesy. What do you think? What goes through your mind when you hear God give such a command? Does it just sound like high flute and spiritual stuff? Like, (laughs) I got more important stuff to think about. Do you think, how can I make myself want something I don't want? What goes through your mind when you hear God commanding you to do this? Do you think, I wonder if I desire enough? It says to earnestly desire. Do I I desire earnestly? I want us to think about this a little differently as we are wrapping up this series. When God commands you to do something, anything, what does it reveal about God? It reveals what he wants, doesn't it? When God commands husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church, to love your wives in a sacrificial, self-giving way, that's what God wants. That's his desire. That's his will. When it calls moms and dads to love their children and raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, it's a command, no doubt. But what does it reveal? It reveals what God wants. It reveals his heart, his desire, his will, his passion, if you will. When God commands us to earnestly desire spiritual gifts, specifically to earnestly desire to prophesy, do it. What does it reveal to us? What God wants doesn't it? The, and when it says earnestly desire, like God is saying, want it really bad. I think it's revealing something to us about what God wants really bad. Now, God could just, you know, sprinkle some whatever Holy Spirit dust on us and we just start doing it. But he commands us to desire this and to ask for it and to seek it. When Jesus teaches about prayer in Luke 11 and Luke 18, I I think of in particular, ask, seek, knock, right? Be like the friend who beats on his neighbor's door at midnight seeking bread. Or be like the widow who goes to the unjust judge again and again and again and again and again seeking justice. I think it shows us the way that God wants us to come to him. He's not an unjust judge and he's not a reluctant friend but he wants us to keep coming. He wants us to pursue him. This is is God's deep desire for us. He wants us to pursue him and to seek him. And he wants us to want these gifts. God wants, think of it this way. God wants to manifest his spirit among us. I find that really helpful. I'm not like this guy down here, you know, wringing my hands like, oh, Lord, please. Now, we should cry out to God. We should pray. We should labor in prayer. We should travail or agonize in prayer. I'm all for that. But if we think we're doing that and and we're trying to twist God's arm or maybe he can't hear us unless we shout really loud, right, or um, whatever, 
then I, I think we're missing something. God commands this because this is on God's heart for us. To ma- for his spirit to come and visit us, for his spirit to find in each one of us a resting place, if you will, a, a willing a participant, someone who, someone who wants to partner with him in the ministry of the church, in building up the body. I think this kind of fatalistic, hey, if God wants to do something, he'll do it. I mean, of course that's true, but God is, God commands things from us. God calls us to participate. God calls us, he commands us to do things. And and here he does. And I think it reveals his desire and his will for us. God has a burning passion, I believe, for his spirit to be manifest among us in certain ways that shines a bright light on his glory and maximizes our joy and our good and our edification. And so he calls us earnestly desire spiritual gifts. In one place he says, since it seems evident that you do desire these gifts, strive for the gifts that build up the most. But all things should be done decently and in order, of course. And as Reed said, it's been four weeks ago now. If we did things decently and in order, as Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians 14, it would look, it look, it might appear like it's not decently and in order in our church. Because we need to grow in this. We need to grow in this. Why does, why does God give, or why does Paul give this instruction decently and in order? I think it's because this shows God to be a God of peace, not of confusion, and because this is how the church is built up the most. So I want to end this way. Do you earnestly desire spiritual gifts? Paul is talking to a church that had a certain zeal for maybe one particular gift, the gift of tongues. And he doesn't try to quell their passion. He he wants to redirect it to the gifts that build up the church most. But he doesn't try to quell their excitement. He says, earnestly desire. If there's any church that Paul maybe would have said, you know what? You don't need to hear this. You need to not desire quite so earnestly. It would have been this church. He doesn't do that. So do you earnestly desire spiritual gifts? Do you have a passion with the Lord Jesus to see the church built up? Do you specifically earnestly desire to speak a word of prophecy, to be used by the Spirit, to receive something from him, a message from him, a revelation from him that you can then deliver to another person, to a group of people, to a church, to this church. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd stir up our hearts this morning. We want to be a church that earnestly desires. God, we want to be a church that doesn't just theologically believe in the gifts, 
but a church that is desiring them, receiving them, employing them, building up the church for your glory. And so we cry out to you, God, that you would do this among us more and more. You are, God, you are, and we thank you for it. We thank you, God, that you're doing it. I pray that you do it more. If you're here this morning and you're just like, I, I want, I earnestly desire spiritual gifts. I do earnestly desire them. Just lift your hands to the Lord. Just lift your hands to the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Praise your holy name. Thank you, Lord. Father, you see the hunger of your children's hearts. And I pray for a fresh outpouring of your spirit upon each one of us here. I pray, Father, for receptivity to your spirit to receive gifts for the benefit of the body. Father, I pray for the gift of prophecy to be given to many people here today. Pray for gifts of healings, God, to be released upon your people here today. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. You know, Alyssa had something she felt like before the message. She wanted wanted to share. I wanted her to come up here real quick before. It's on. It should be. Um, I just wanted to share during worship. Um, the Lord was speaking to me, and um, I just heard Him say, "Talk about my beauty." And it doesn't sound maybe that amazing, but He was just saying, "Talk about my beauty." And we were worshiping, so I was kind of like getting distracted. <laughs> like, but um, and I said, I felt like I kind of thought, "Well, I don't know what to say about your beauty, other than that I've seen your beauty." And then my brain just kind of racked the verses. That's what I always do when God speaks. I'm always kind of like, okay, what are the verses, God? <laughs> like I think of Psalm 27 for one thing I have desired that I will seek, that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. This one thing. And, um, and then after I sat down, I did a little Google search too. <laughs> Because I was like, I don't know, that's like the one that's coming to be God. And then there's another verse in Psalm 90 that just said, let the beauty of, this is King James Version, but let the beauty of our Lord be upon us. And um, I felt like the thing the Lord wanted me to share with you, he wants his people to see his beauty because when you see his beauty, his beauty rests on you. And I think I was, I was also just communicating with the Lord, like, what's the process? Like, how do you... And how do people see your beauty? And I felt like he kind of gave me almost this, this picture of, you know, when we meet someone, we might think, wow, they're beautiful. But when we spend time with them and we really learn their heart, we're like, wow, they're even more beautiful than I thought. I mean, I, I know that's not every person you encounter, but we all have those people in our life. Like the more we're with them, we're like, wow, they're just, they're really amazing. I mean, I, I thought they were beautiful on the outside, but once I really got to know, I thought, man, their heart and who they are. And I felt like the Lord is just giving me that picture of just, you know, we see the Lord as beautiful, I believe, in, in measure. It's all of us in different measure. But just the more we sit with him and the more we gaze upon his beauty, it's like his beauty just expands before us and becomes even more beautiful. And I think the other verse then that came to mind was just Second Corinthians 3.17 about beholding him, we become 
you know, more and more like his image and we go from glory to glory. And, and I really believe the beauty of the Lord is like that. The more we behold him, the more we see his beauty and it just, it just expands before us. And then his beauty upon us just expands in our own hearts. So I wanted to share that.